So everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad, and we are kicking off a robotics theme. Uh, luckily, we have Max Kirkpatrick here with us, who's going to tell us a lot about robots, because once again, Vlad and I don't know very much about robots. Uh, but Max, so without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nice to be here. Really appreciate uh, your time. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Absolutely. So I was going to say, um, if you guys haven't heard our talk about digital twin and virtual commissioning, Colm was on episode 40. That will be a very good precursor to a lot of stuff that Max is going to talk about software-wise um, on robotics. But uh, but can we kind of just jump in, Max? Can you give us a little bit of your background? How do you get to have, I don't know, $500 million or whatever it is of robotics uh, behind you. You got four or five robots. You got a, a 3D printing machine. How, uh, how did you get here? Uh, you might be off by a couple orders of magnitude, but um, yeah. So um, I'm a, uh, I'm a robotics engineer for Siemens. Um, I have been in this position for the last maybe three, four years now, just about four years. Uh, I graduated from the university of South Carolina in 2018 uh, with a degree in mechanical engineering and a minor in computer science. Uh, and even before that, I was doing all sorts of fun work with robots. So I think I started in labs on campus programming my first industrial arms. And uh, before that, I it might be some people that are familiar with uh, FIRST Robotics. Uh, I was on FRC team in high school, right? So I started doing this, this kind of stuff a while ago. Um, but I... I guess I got a passion for it uh, and I kept uh, trying to learn how to program and learn how kinematic devices work and all this stuff and uh, got to the point where uh, I got a job offer from Siemens to take on this consulting position, this robotics consulting position and uh, took that and then got a whole lot more experience uh, in the field with with robots and uh, robot programming and simulation. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's basically the gist of it. Um, Max, if we can dig into the education you know, path a little bit more. I'm curious, you know, to hear, hear your perspective now that you're doing a lot more, I would say, industrial robotics. What was the the thought? And I guess like in retrospect, uh, going into mechanical and getting a minor in computer science, would you do that again? You know, seeing what you see now was, you know, what are what is your perspective on that? I think at least through the context of industrial robotics, I think that's like a very good path to go down. Um, I think uh, actually in industrial robotics is a lot more mechanical and like physics engineering kind of stuff going on than there is computer science. Um, it's very useful to have the computer science background and uh, I would recommend it. If you don't know how to program something, just learn how to program anything. <laughs> um, but, you know, past the base level of understanding logical statements and, and being able to author something in, in like Python or something like that, um, you don't need a huge level of in-depth compound knowledge to know how to program most robots. Um, but what you do need is this knowledge of mechanical systems. Uh, it's very useful to understand how robots will move. Um, and like, if you can understand things like loads and uh, moment arms and uh, kinematics and dynamics, uh, it makes uh, understanding what is going wrong in your robot still a lot easier. Uh, because in a lot of ways, the, the robot vendors take care of all of the, uh, the math for you behind the scenes, uh, but luckily, you can be able to interpret what's going on. Oh yeah, very luckily. The uh, inverse kinematics are complicated, but um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that background really helps. 
And Max, if, if I may expand on that, how was the, the learning curve, right? So if I understand correctly, you had some exposure to these robotic arms while you were studying in your program. But if you were, again, maybe to start from scratch and learn robotics, what do you think are maybe the challenges of that? Or how would you proceed like differently? What would be uh, kind of some thoughts around getting into robotics and learning it from uh, scratch to where you are today? That's, that's an interesting one. I think um, the the biggest piece of single piece of advice I have for people is to learn uh, any programming language, um, and then that becomes a very good jumping off point for just about any kind of uh, mechatronic system, no matter what you're programming. Um, but for robotics in particular, um, like the learning curve was. I would say it's, it's definitely got some steepness there, right? Like you, you learn the, the, the theory in school and you learn like, okay, kinematic linkages and uh, this is how we can invert a matrix and do some inverse kinematics. Maybe we need a pseudo inverse, all this stuff. But you don't actually have to care so much about all that stuff when you start working with the arm. You have to care about like, oh, uh, is this arm moves through a singularity. It's going to rapidly rotate the joint, uh, it's like J4, J5, around and it could smack into something and you didn't necessarily think about that when you were programming the path or um you might have to care about deflection of the arm as you put a, a load in the gripper um or uh, on the end of the arm and the arm tooling and you might not anticipate the five millimeters of deflection that you'll get when you try to lift up this uh, 100 pound object or something right um and these sorts of like practical considerations and of course you can model the theory for all this and you can work that all out analytically but um no one usually does <laughs> so when you go to try it in the real world um things break and then you have to fix them um i don't think i've ever met a single robot programmer who can honestly say they haven't crashed a robot right i'm pretty sure every single one i've ever met has crashed a robot at some point Absolutely. I think it's just a, a rite of passage, so to speak. And yeah. I think it happens fairly early on in your career, yeah. right? And you've realized yeah. like what kind of a trouble you can run into. And hopefully it's just, you know, minor damage or, you know, end of arm tool that gets bent and can be put back into shape. But no, it could be, um, I guess robotics in general could lead to fairly disastrous consequences, right? And uh, safety is a big part of robotics. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, Max, I want to ask you, uh, you know, what are you um, maybe doing today with Siemens? And can you give us maybe some examples or use cases of, of what you're working on uh, today? Uh, yeah, so my role within Siemens is as a, uh, a consultant for our uh, customers. And what I do is I'll... Um, build uh, out simulations and programming environments for robot cells, lines, uh, manufacturing floor setups uh, in companies across the Americas. Um, and this could be things like, uh, I mean, the canonical example is robotic spot welding or arc welding in automotive cell um, all the way through to, I've done, uh, I've done drilling for composite parts. I've done automated fiber placements. I've done, uh, inspection of composite parts. Um, that's all A and D stuff, but I've also done uh, uh, electronics uh, box build kind of things. So like assembling electronic components. Um, we, you know, I, I'm very much work across industry. And what I tend to do is we, we will take our, our robots and well, any, any vendors to robots, like the robots you see behind me and then place them into a simulation environment where we can 
uh, actually program and develop the paths uh, completely offline, right? And that's what we would call offline programming. Um, and we use a, a simulation suite for that to allow us to uh, build and evaluate and I guess ensure that everything's going to perform the way we expect it to when we when we hit run, right? And Max, you know, that's one of the misconceptions that uh, I think Dave and I had when we spoke to Clint. And again, this conversation happened a little bit off stream, but Siemens is not necessarily the manufacturer of a lot of these robotics arms, but they do come in on the simulation side. And a lot of times, again, coming from a food and beverage background, it was perhaps not the connection that I've made initially. It becomes really important to simulate these applications in um, automotive environments where the complexity is highly increased. Could you talk a little bit more to us about, you know, Siemens's, Siemens's involvement in robotics specifically and where do these tools come into play? Yeah, so that's absolutely right, right? We don't uh, make our own robot arms. There's no uh, teal robots. We deal with the orange ones and the red ones and the white ones and the blue ones. Um, bonus points if you can name all those companies. But um those, uh, what, what we do is in, instead we build uh, simulation models of, of the, of the uh, systems that we're using. And, and in cases where the complexity is very high, uh, let's say we have 20 robots all working collaboratively in a uh, automotive line, right, where everything needs to be synchronized. And if one robot moves out of turn, you could be crashing uh, multiple robots and many hundreds of thousands of dollars in end of, uh, end of arm tooling. Um, you know, it, it pays a lot of money to get it right the first time. Um, and so that's where uh, offline programming tools come into play. Um, and there are other, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the vendors out there for robots uh, have their own offline programming tools. But what we can, what we, what we do inside our tool, which is uh, called Process Simulate, um, is we can take in uh, all the different vendors, we can program just about any robot you can buy off the shelf anywhere. And we can have as many of them as you want in a cell. We can load all sorts of other geometry and other devices. Um, we can implement uh, PLC programs inside the, inside the simulation environment. There's a lot of capability that we have that lets us, um, I guess, evaluate just about every facet of the, of the robotic cell before, uh, before we deploy any code to the system. And, and Max, if you can mention a couple of, uh, I guess, the software tools and how they tie in between each other. We have that question in the comments from Malachi Greb, who's a systems integrator. So he's curious about, um, you know, he, so traditionally, you know, you'd come in and program, let's say, a FANUC robot in their own like native language. But how does it mm -hmm. get translated into the uh, Siemens world and how does it tie in? Also, on, on my side, I'm curious a little bit on the PLC side, you know, how does that tie into TIA portal, for example? Yeah, so um, the first question on just the robotics side, if we would just just say we had one of these robots behind me, these are Yaskawa robots, um, and we wanted to program one of these, what we would do is we would create the uh, the path in three dimensions, or I guess uh, three dimensions plus the three rotational components. Um, we would create that path in the software, uh, taking into account all the collisions and weight conditions and anything else that we want to have in there. Uh, and then we would uh, post that to the robot's native syntax using a post processor that runs on uh, on our software package. So inside Process Simulate, we would right-click on the operation and just say, download to robot, and it would post using the configured post for that machine. Um, we have posts for, like I said, just about any uh, major vendor 
you can think of, you know, Kuka, Kumal, ABB, uh, Fanek, Yaskawa, all, all the all the big names. Um, on the PLC side, what we do is we uh, integrate with PLC Sim Advanced, um, and what we can do is we could actually evaluate the signal states uh, of the simulated cell and send those states back to PLC Sim Advanced over an API. Um, and so you might have your your portal project running on a virtualized PLC, um, and then that PLC will say. Uh, let's say I have a conveyor and I'm just going to turn off the conveyor when a part gets to a certain location on the conveyor. So I have a sensor, I have a conveyor and it's a, just a light sensor, right? So when the beam gets interrupted, the conveyor stops easy, easy PLC program, but um, without, you know, without actually physically testing it, what we can do is we're going to have a virtualized sensor. We can have the virtualized conveyor. We can have the virtualized component on the conveyor. And as that conveyor moves forward, the box will eventually interrupt the beam. And then the simulation will send the signal to the, virtualized PLC to say, hey, your beam has been interrupted. Uh, and then the PLC will say, okay, beam's interrupted. I'm going to stop the conveyor. And it sends that signal back to the simulation. So it's a two-way communication with PLC Sim Advanced um, that allows us to pull in PLC code and actually have a virtualized PLC control uh, just about every facet of the cell. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think we've had that again discussion off stream with uh, with Colm, but it's really interesting that you can simulate, again, not just the robotic arm, which is, I guess, what I thought was a robotic simulation software, mm -hmm. but also other components that would be a part of that cell, right? So you can most likely simulate the gates, the sensors, mm -hmm. any like end of arm tools that you could mount on that yep. arm and probably product as well that's coming in on a conveyor belt with certain variations of that product. So it's... yeah. It's definitely really interesting. Dave, before we dive into, you know, higher technical topics that I'm very interested in personally, uh, I want to give you a chance maybe to ask a couple of questions as well. Absolutely. No, I appreciate it, Vlad. So, Max, we were talking with Colm, um, again, a number of weeks ago, and he was describing through digital twin and virtual commissioning how he was able to help, you know, some of his clients reduce the time from purchase order through visualization to, you know, completed machine, like the, typically that process would be about two years. And I think they got it down to six months for some of the mm -hmm. machines. Um, and I feel like that was a very eye opening conversation uh, point. Do, do you have like an example, either Greenfield or Brownfield? And again, it doesn't have to be a specific customer, but could you just like walk us through what the typical process looks like for you to go simulate robotic arms as part of I? Again, I yeah. assume like a digital twin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for a Greenfield example, um, the lab that you see behind me is actually a lab on the campus of the University of South Carolina, uh, where I am. Uh, I got my undergrad there. I'm currently getting my master's there as well. Um, and this is a lab that didn't exist at all two years ago. Um, right. And I think we got it. So the state that you see behind me is uh, maybe this is like six months old now or so. But we got from uh, from napkin sketch to uh, robots on tables and everything, you know, running the full system. It took us less than a year, I think. Um, it took us maybe, I think it was about nine months total. Um, and what that process looked like was, you know, we started with just uh, the blockiest, like, most rudimentary simulation you can possibly think of, where, you know, you could have drawn it up on napkins or flip cards and it would have been the same effect. 
Um, and we started by just modeling up where we wanted parts to go at what times. And, uh, you know, then we started breaking it down into, okay, well, these are the individual operations need to do to do that. And then we said, okay, well, where can we place stuff physically so they can reach all the things that needs, needs to reach. And then we wound up with a few layout alternatives. Uh, once we have those alternatives, we then, uh, do a little bit more analysis on each of them. And then we filter down onto what we want. And the, the, we use the same simulation tool all the way through this. So we're sort of maturing our model uh, as we go from just boxes, like literal boxes of like, this is the reach volume of this robot. We just chuck it on the table and we say, okay, if the robot's in the middle of the sphere, <laughs> this is what it can reach all the way through to, okay, now we're actually simulating every individual operation that the robot's doing. And then finally, we go to, okay, we've actually programmed these, we've generated offline programs and we have generated PLC code, which was a, a different story, but that uh, we have our PLC program and then we can connect those two together and actually watch the whole cell uh, with um, the virtual HMI, virtual PLC, all controlling the virtual uh, virtual cell. And I think from, from inception of design, and the granting of the money to get this done. So to, to the point where we actually had robots up and running and able to execute a task was probably about nine months, um, which I think for a five robot cell um, mm -hmm. is pretty quick <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. So if I'm a manufacturer and I have, I don't know, we'll, we'll call it unlimited budget, right? Is, <laughs> is nine months from saying, hey, Max, I know I want to put, you know, a number of robots in this place to do this series of tasks is that is that a realistic time frame is that a very aggressive time frame so if you're using you know if you're using the simulation tools and you're using yep. um i guess all of the software to its fullest extent i think that's a fairly like reasonable time frame okay. um yeah it doesn't seem overly aggressive but it also doesn't seem like overly conservative you know and Max, do you think we're going to, I guess, you know, looking at the robotics industry, and I think uh, you would probably agree, but I also want your opinion on this. There's going to be a growing demand in, obviously in automation, but robotics specifically, again, due to, we would say COVID, but ultimately, I would say not enough people to be able to fill uh, certain jobs that are fairly straightforward, I would say, to automate to some degree. What are your thoughts on, I guess, the changes in the industry with that regard? Is it going to drive like faster robotics? Is it going to be faster to deploy? Uh, simulation, I'm assuming, is going to grow because, again, it, the turnaround times need to be shortened. What are your thoughts in general? Yeah, well, so one thing that's happening right now is there's uh, massive lead times on just about anything <laughs> you could possibly want to buy. Um, and so one thing we can do is make use of that time, that dead time by through use of simulation, right? If I know exactly what everything's going to do and it's just sitting on order, well, why don't I just program it now and, uh, and do it beforehand? So that's, that's one area where we've seen a lot of interest is we can just program up front and then when they get in the door, it's like, okay, no, now we can just turn the cell on. Um, that, so that, that's one, uh, that's one area. I think another thing, um, is like there's there's a lot of demand for people that know how to do this level of work um that know how to do this and i think that demand is only going to continue to increase um uh, robotics and automation as a field isn't going anywhere um in fact i, I think it's expanding um into mm -hmm. more and more spaces it used to be we would always say we want to automate the dull dirty and dangerous tasks right 
But now we're also talking about, well, there's some dull tasks that people do that we've just said weren't possible to automate before, but now, you know, maybe we can actually automate that. Maybe through use of cobots or AGVs, we can actually start to automate some of these tasks that were previously, uh, that we previously thought weren't possible. Um, and I think that that's, that's definitely coming down the pipeline, if you will. Yeah, and we'll dive into that a little bit more because I know you're doing a lot of, uh, well, you're you're writing your master thesis and obviously we'll discuss that a little bit. But it, again, I think it, it's really interesting to see all the, the changes in, in the robotics space. I wanted to ask you, you know, what about controls from a PLC versus controls on the robot? Because I think, again, me and Dave had this conversation a while ago. And um, again, I think it opens a lot of opportunities from the sense that if you have software, again, that's standardized across different vendors, it offers a unique opportunity to make it much easier, even, you know, from the standpoint that you mentioned, there's a lot of engineers trying to learn these different platforms, and there's not enough people to just fill that gap. So why not make that learning curve a lot uh, less steep? Yeah, um, and and I think, so PLC-based robotics are, are very interesting. Um there's actually some efforts from Siemens and from some other companies as well to try to build standardized libraries uh, for PLC programming of robots. And this would be like, I have a somatic uh, PLC, like a S7-1500 or something. Um, and I just basically plug it into a KUKA robot and I say, okay, KUKA robot, you're just going to listen to everything I say now. And so instead of the KUKA having its own, uh, instead of the KUKA having its own programs on board, it's going to have a bunch of commands that we can call up from the PLC. And the PLC just specifies the path in real time and sends those coordinates to the robot and the robot just moves. It's sort of like a dumb servo, right? Or rather a really smart, dumb servo. Uh, but yeah. that has in uh, it, with it. Uh, so the advantage, of course, is that you could do any number of robots from any different number of brands the same way, right? So I could have five different robots from five different manufacturers. And I could have one PLC guy that knows how to write ladder uh, who could program all these robot systems for me. The disadvantage is that because you're trying to span across uh, platforms and because you're trying to uh, do this on a, on a PLC, it, it typically in ladder instead of in a text-based programming environment, you're typically limited on what you actually can do with a system like this. So KUKA and FANUC and ABB, they have a lot of differentiating selling points that they like to use as saying, this is why our arm is the best. Um, they're probably not going to be overly thrilled about releasing that on an open platform. And so what that means is that some of these advanced features might not be available to you. This might be something that's really good for like a machine builder who has like two or three arms in conjunction with a bunch of other moving pieces. And they just need to move to a couple positions, but realistically they aren't doing any sort of complex curve following or spline work, or maybe not doing any visual inspection. These sort of like uh, force feedback advanced topics in robotics that are just starting to come to the, uh, into the field, they probably aren't going to be supported on PLC directly for a while now. Um, and that's where you know, tools like uh, ProcessSim or any other offline programming suite uh, would let you do some of this stuff that uh, is specific to each robot, but still have a common background to program in, right? So that's that's where I work, but I, I definitely see the I definitely see the usefulness of a solution like that. I just don't know if it's at the point today where I would say every robot I purchase, I want to program with a PLC. Um, I think that there's still a lot of capability that's not there yet. 
And, uh, and, and to Max's point, I met one gentleman back in 27 or 2018 who was building robots without controls on them. But basically every large manufacturer, whether they be, you know, yellow or orange or blue or white, they're going to sell you a very expensive controller on there. And while I know some people crazy enough to have been ripping off controllers for more than a decade, that's because there were very specific use cases that the tolerances on those controllers weren't enough. So PO, trying to control via PLC is certainly not a less expensive option. Uh-huh. And then, it, then if we try to have the PLC programmer, so we generally already don't have enough of, try to now program robots, I think that that, that that could certainly cause a number of issues because many of them may not be used to kind of all the, I mean, the, the quite physical motion of yeah. those robots and well, what and that, that can do. That's like what we started with at the, at the top of the call where, you know, I, I mentioned that having a mechanical background is actually quite helpful in robotics because these things move, right? Um, and a PLC programmer might not be overly familiar with like the way in which robots move. That might've always been the robot guy's job. What I will say though, as a, as a, a you know, a, an advantage of these types of systems where we have a master PLC that's directly controlling a robot like that um, is that debugging becomes debugging on the shop floor becomes a lot easier. I mean, there's a lot more people out there that know ladder than that know every single robot programming language. Right. Um, and it's one less place to look for problems. So you don't have to pull up the teach pendant and start. Well, you can just be on your regular HMI and look at that, or, you know, you can just open a portal and go online and look at the, at your ladder rungs and see what signal is missing. Um, that kind of thing, as opposed to, having to use two separate uh, environments and try to trace signals back and forth between them. It, it really can be a mess. Right. Uh, and that's that system integrations hell that everyone, everyone hates. Right. Um, and I'm sure there are some system integrators uh, listening that are very familiar with that integration hell. Right. <laughs> so that, that certainly can be a benefit. No, absolutely. absolutely. And I think uh, all of us have been in there. Uh, in that situation. Dave, yeah. did you have a comment? I, I, w- I would say kind of to Max's point is I think many of these are complicated. And when you have two or three or five systems, there are so few people that are experts at any one of those systems. It just becomes very difficult. I, I chatted with a group kind of at the beginning of the pandemic who kind of found this strange niche in building a software platform that allowed people to do a better job just specifically on their welding robots because they find a lot of people buy welding robots and then they can't actually get the welding robots to do welds that will pass inspections. Yeah. Uh, and so, so yeah. they found a, you know, it was, it was a super simple overlay of a screen, but they found that if they go and kind of set the robotic arm up correctly, they can let you punch in, you know, your four or eight actual pertinent points of information and then the robot can weld. And th- that, so I think simplification, wh- whether it's through PLCs, whether it's through standardized libraries, whether it's through more people have a better understanding about how to use these specific robotic languages. I think we need to find a way to simplify more in order to do a better job pushing uh, robots out into, uh, into manufacturing facilities and then implement, implementing them successfully. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, my only add on to that is that we need to, I think, focus on what I would call targeted simplification, because if you have a, a robot, you just try to dumb down everything 
um, you, congrats, you just stripped away all the functionality of the robot. You can now go from point A to point B, right? I mean, we can do a whole lot more than that now. What you need to do is have like application specific simplification. So, um, and this is the job of, of engineers in general, right? I mean, this is like my job. This is a job of robotics engineers the world over to try to find ways to make systems usable to people that aren't robotics engineers. Um, but, you know, if, if you start pulling away all of the complexity, then you also lose all of the functionality. So you have to find that balance somewhere in there, especially for the use case that it works very nicely. Um, and, and, you know, for PLC based systems, I think that right now we have a very good balance for simple use cases. So a very good balance for pick and place use cases, a very good balance for integrated inside for uses where a robot is integrated inside a machine and is basically used as a positioner. Whereas, you know, we might not have a very good balance yet for cobots or for, uh, let's say, friction stir welding robots, <laughs> right? I mean, there's certain levels of complexity that are beyond the scope of what we can do with PLCs right now. And some of those are beyond the scope, like you mentioned before, of what we can do with the controller that comes with the robot. I mean, there are some companies that say that your level of precision you can get out of that motion controller is not good enough for me. I need to, if I'm doing milling on the end of a robot arm, I need a better controller than what you gave me, right? So um, it goes both ways. But I would say that there are, I would say that there are probably very few companies that actually need a significantly better controller with better tolerances than yeah. what has come out. And we've kind of made leaps and bounds in the last five to 10 years of robotics. And so controllers are now certainly better than they are. And I would say every company that I know that is ripping off controllers is doing this in the process of, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, worth of sales that they're putting because the, the value of what they're building is, you know, is just that much. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I want to slightly shift the conversation to, uh, to something that you brought up you kind of introduced the concept to us a couple of days ago, Max, and I kind of want to let you introduce the concept to everyone else. So you you told us about this crazy futuristic thing called soft robots. Can you tell everyone what this is, please? Yeah, um, and you know, if there's any soft robots experts in the in the audience, they might get mad at me because yeah, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. But um, basically, the premise is that you know in Today's robots, the, the robots you see behind me in, in most industrial settings, we have these six axis arms or maybe sometimes seven axes um, or some external axes, but they're all like very uh, rigidly defined uh, single points of motion, right? Um, so if I look at like these arms behind me, they have six axes. The first just spins it around uh, the base, the next does the tilt, and then the next does the next tilt. <laughs> um, all, all of that's very like rigidly defined. Um, in a soft robot, uh, the joints are no longer single points of motion, right? And this is gonna, this is going to start to get kind of hard to explain, but um, they're sometimes referred to as continuum manipulators, uh, where instead of bending at a singular point between two rigid bodies, so they have like these two points and they just rotate at this location, right? They they sort of they move around a fixed point. Um, now we have a a unit that bends along its length. So the, the entire member, the entire link bends uh, across its entire length. Um, and that allows you to like curve around stuff. So you can actually like have a, an arm that can like 
curve around an obstacle because it can physically bend the arm around the obstacle. I mean, you could also think of it as having a, a robot with many hundreds of joints, right? Or many thousands of joints. Um, but in reality, what it is, is a robot that's bending continuously along its length. Um, and you can stack these on top of each other. You get sort of snake-like structures out of these. And what would be, I guess, I think we discussed this a little bit again off stream, but the use cases, could you mention where this could be like interesting or solving like a very specific uh, use case perhaps? Yeah. So, so these sorts of things have a number of prospective use cases, um, but soft-sided robots are, um, I guess, first off, they're called soft-sided because usually they are like safe to touch. They have no pinch points, right? Um, because you can't, Imagine you have like a pool noodle. You can't like bend that pool noodle so sharp that it would chop someone's finger off, right? That's it's not ever going to happen. So they're safe to be around people in non-gated work areas, right? I can have this in an open space uh, and I can have this in someone's home or I can have this on an AGV that's moving around a hotel or something like that. Um, the other thing is that because they bend in interesting and different ways, they can reach reach around obstacles that a traditional arm wouldn't necessarily be able to. They can reach kinematic solutions that uh, just aren't even things that you could conceptualize for a six-axis arm. Um, and this makes them more flexible for uh, like assisted living environments or uh, environments where uh, like home environments where the robot might need to be performing actions on behalf of a person. Um, who can't do them themselves, right? Uh, so this is actually something that I, I published a paper on a while ago uh, in uh, the Resna conference, but um, this is, uh, I, I, I did some work in this, <laughs> basically building a mock-up version of this, a two-stage continual manipulator um, that could reach around obstacles and, um, and perform these types of assisted living uh, applications, like opening the door or getting something from a top shelf. Uh, and the fact that it was a soft-sided arm meant that it could function in a uh, in a an elderly person's home without having uh, substantial risk to that inhabitant, right? Um, so that that's one application. There are a lot of other fields that these are also useful in. Um, they can do things that are more closely related to how humans can move, right? Um, and there's a lot of research in this field right now about trying to get robots to emulate human behavior. Um, so that that's also you know like any anytime you start thinking about well I, you know i couldn't really bend a six axis arm in that way well you probably can figure out a way to make a snake like or a continuum manipulator bend in that sort of way and max if we can ask you about the challenges of soft, soft robotics i know that we've already mentioned kind of at the beginning of the conversation the heavy mathematics involved in traditional robots what does it look like in soft robotics and what are some of the other challenges that you know so i mean uh, the mathematics involved in a in a six axis or a seven axis arm i mean it's you know it's it's uh it's inverting the matrix and sometimes you don't have a singular solution and so you have like these six different solutions you can choose from we call those configurations but at least there's like a solution most of the time um and at least it's, you know, not an infinite number of solutions most of the time. Singularities exist and, you know, we're, we're probably all aware of that, of those problems. But um, these issues are a lot more common when you start thinking about a robot that could be modeled as having 10,000 joints. 
um, because you might have 10,000 heavily constrained joints that correspond to the individual little bends in the arm, if that makes sense. Um, and so we, we model these things as stages instead of individual discrete joints. And then we have to do all the physics and dynamics along the length of that stage. So imagine, um, you know, think back to your solids class that you took in college and you think about like, okay, well, the, uh, beam bending problems. So I need, I am going to have this thing bend along its length. Well, how much force do I need to apply at what distance to make this thing bend and how, what radius is that going to result in? And then do all that, but backwards so that you can figure out for a given target position, how you can bend the different stages to get to that target position. Um, so you're like stacking up multiple, uh, multiple beam bending problems on each other and then solving it in reverse, <laughs> which is, that's uh, yeah. So it's good to have a software background when working with, uh, especially these robots, because I'm, I'm assuming the computing power required to do these calculations is quite uh, extensive, at least at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when inverse kinematics systems for for six axis arms first came around, too, you know, people were like, "Oh, this is really hard," and now we just consider it a trivial solved problem, right? I'm sure that this is going to get to that point eventually, um, just like. Uh, path planning algorithms are one of those things that is another area of research where we're getting substantially faster. It used to be that like path planning was like, okay, we'll just do a star. We'll just uh, brute, brute force our way through, through, through and find a solution. Now we have much better approaches to pathfinding um, genetic algorithms. We have, uh, we have um, machine learning techniques um, that are much better at path solving than just brute force a star. Right. Um, and so uh, we're like, I'm sure we will develop similar solutions for continuum manipulators and for other, um, you know, like AGV solutions. Like, we're going to find better uh, computational techniques. We always have, but right now, yeah, it's, it's the brute force approach is tedious <laughs> is what I will say. No, absolutely. And if we can shift a little bit, uh, Dave, before I let you jump in one last question that I got from Max, at least for now, at least for now. Uh, you know, you've mentioned, yeah, you've mentioned cobots. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on uh, like the cobot, not necessarily maybe market, but the applications that you see in the current space. Do you see that uh, expanding? Do you see, again, in the industrial space, a lot more collaborative applications? Do you think that that's going to like maybe still be overshadowed by traditional robots? And at the same time, you know, any other areas that you see expanding uh, similar to cobots on any other like tangents from robotics? I think um, anything that's done at volume will probably still be done uh, by traditional robotics for a, for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. um, we might even see things like the safety barriers going away and being replaced by computer vision approaches to monitor human presence and stuff like that. But really? okay. um yeah, that's that's a research area too. But but I think the arms are going to stay the same uh, in those high volume production areas. Like I said, there might be cost cutting measures to try to reduce cost of setup and reduce uh, safety overhead and these sorts of things with better technology. But I think the arms are going to stay the same. But the the area I see cobots most used in is in low volume open areas. So like if I have um, 
let's say an application, well, and, and, and in applications where human positioning is much more accurate than robot positioning is right now. So one of the areas I've seen it was in lift assist, right? If I have a, a heavy object and I need a person to position very precisely at a location, um, a lift assist system driven by a robot is, is very much a viable solution for that. And uh, I've seen multiple places where they've done that kind of thing. Um, other cases are anytime where a manufacturer really doesn't want to have to put a cage around something, they can do the same application they were doing with a traditional robot with a cobot and just say, okay, well, now we're just going to speed limit the thing and we're going to have torque sensing on all the joints and we'll make sure that if you know, something runs into this, we stop, right? Those are, those are the two big areas where I'm seeing it. Um, there's also some stuff being done with like um, robots working in and alongside human workspaces for like AGVs moving along in and alongside uh, human walkways. And um, we might have uh, AGV mounted robots. So we have like a robot that's mounted on top of an AGV that can deliver things to certain locations or perform maintenance at certain locations. Um, but these are, I think, less, I, I see a lot of companies looking into that as like being like, is this a viable solution? Is this something that we actually want to use? But I don't see it being used in production very much right now. Those, uh, especially places where humans and robots are like very definitively sharing the workspace, it hasn't taken off quite as much as I think a lot of people expected it to. I think it's still coming, right? Um, I think it's just harder than people imagine. One of the reasons that it's difficult is that the the paths aren't known until they run. So you can't really make any guarantees about what this robot is about to do until it moves because, well, I mean, in a cobot situation, a robot may dynamically adjust its path to avoid a collision, or it may be actively being guided by a human, right? And then in those cases, uh, traditional offline programming or teach-dependent programming doesn't make any sense because the path isn't static anymore. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I mean, I have a lot more questions, but Dave... There it is. I promise everyone that Vlad will say something to the effect of, and I have a lot more questions. We will talk more about the, the future of robots, and I specifically want to dig into that robot versus cobot and the applications that we use that in. Uh, before we thank some people, Max, I do have one question. Now, this is probably maybe the strangest question that, uh, that we'll ask today. So soft robots or soft-sided robots, we talked about it kind of being the snake arm. As you were describing it, I'm kind of almost thinking like an octopus tentacle, right? Well, like because it yeah. can move around and it can grab things. So are they all going to be one or are we maybe going to stack, you know, a bunch of them together to be able to, to pick and maneuver a variety of different shaped objects? Uh, there's definitely nothing that would guarantee that you would only have to use one, right? Um, okay. I think the only reason why you might say you should use one is because the level of complexity uh, goes way up, right? You start saying you want to have coordinated motion of two continuum manipulators or two soft-sided robots. Um, I mean, shoot, coordinated motion of two six-axis arms is already very, very difficult, right? Those are the, some of the most complex cells uh, in the world where you have like one robot that's doing arc welding and another robot that's moving the part that the first robot is arc yep. welding, right? Mm -hmm. Coordinated motion is hard. Uh, and coordinated motion of things where we don't actually have a very good model for how they move yet is even harder. So mm -hmm. I think, um, interesting. I think that's, so it's coming down the line, but it's far. Yeah. Okay. So I, I understand what, uh, what you're saying, Max, 
And so, Vlad, my takeaway is manufacturing hub at some point will have an octopus-shaped soft-sided robot that we're going to take places and it's just going to pick up things, you know, beer cups and, and wine bottles and then open them up and like pour the drinks, coffee. Yeah. All of these things are, are very realistically doable generally within our lifetimes. Uh, so so thank, thank you for that, Max. Um, I, I, I like that. Uh, but before we continue to get into the future, we have some people to thank. Uh, so Vlad, can you play the, uh, the sound for us and uh, we can thank Siemens. There we go. Awesome. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we absolutely want to thank Siemens uh, for, for sponsoring this show and the entire robotics theme. Um, now, the technological tasks in modern machines and plants are diverse and often, uh, <coughs> excuse me, are, are odd. Wow, I've completely lost it. Let me try again. The technological tasks in modern machines and plants are diverse and often demanding. It's good to know that there's a smart answer to all the challenges regarding motion control, signal acquisition output, closed loop and PID control, edge computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning with cymatic technology and the cymatic technology CPUs. Now Siemens is a global leader and innovator when it comes to motion controls, robotic and simulation applications. They have one of the world's biggest investors uh, in technology R&D. Now, now get this slide, they're spending more than 6.11 billion big B U.S. dollars per year, and they've maintained the investment even throughout the entire pandemic. Now, I want Vlad and everyone else to think what they could possibly be doing with 6.11 billion USD per year, and uh, we should all be getting excited. So the integrated and scalable cymatic technology automation solutions save you valuable, valuable engineering time for simple tasks as well as for complex issues and guarantee maximum efficiency and flexibility. This means one engineering framework with TIA portal, one control with cymatic technology CPU, one communication for standard automation, safety, and motion control with Profinet. I, I think it's, it's amazing. Um, as I will joke, or as I will tell everyone as we were joking with Max, episode 40 when we talked to Colm about uh, digital twin and virtual commissioning, uh, I think I said something to the effect of Colm. I think Siemens does everything except robotics. And he just kind of looks at me and he's like, don't worry, we build the software that controls a lot of these robotics, uh, which kind of brings us here. So uh, again, thank you to Siemens for sponsoring this theme and your continued support of the entire community. Uh, with that, Max, I, I want to jump back into the conversation of robot versus cobot. I was actually having this exact conversation of people using cobots for what I would generally consider more of a legacy robot application but being able to do it in a smaller location or being able to do it without kind of all, all of the safety barricades and, and that. Do you think that we're going to see more of this going forward or do you think we're possibly going to see some of these legacy three, five, six, seven sided robotic arms take on more of what cobots are doing to be more versatile in facilities? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if for most applications that aren't like spitting fire everywhere uh the vast majority of them wind up as cobot type systems uh without the guarding um i think that especially as uh machine vision and uh i guess machine learning type solutions get better and better um and as these sensors get smaller and smaller and better integrated into the arms 
there's going to be less of a reason to even buy a robot that doesn't have these capabilities baked in. Um, now, if you're arc welding and you're you're spinning fiery sparks everywhere, I think you probably still need an enclosure. <laughs> Just my two cents. But um, uh, otherwise, I think that uh, I think that we'll see a lot of arms. Uh, that look like regular six-sided, six-axis robots, rather, um, that are just safety-enabled, such that, like, if you run into them, they stop. And if, uh, if you know, it, it, and I think that's true for anything that's not being done at ridiculously high rate or very dangerous inherently. If you start having things that the arm has to move incredibly quickly, uh, I don't really care if you, uh, if, if it stops really, really fast, it's still going to conk you in the head and give you a concussion. Um, but you know, the, otherwise I, I think that in a lot of cases we'll find, uh, cobot arms in places where we would traditionally find regular arms and just say, well, why is that a cobot? And the answer is going to be so that people can walk around it and not be worried about losing their life. Right. It's not going to be a matter of, uh, enhanced functionality. It's going to be a matter of reduced cost. And Max, maybe a, as a follow-up and slightly fundamental question, I would say on cobots, uh, because I would say my experience with them has been primarily through trade shows, right? And seeing them mostly in like a demo environment. What are the, I would say the trade-offs. For, so from my understanding, it was usually the speed and typically mm-hmm. a slightly higher like premium or cost. And could you give us maybe yeah. again, some idea of like those differences, right? Is it magnitudes of costs and magnitudes of speeds, or is it becoming closer and closer to what you see in traditional robotics? Um, I think so. Those are, those are definitely the two main areas, right? Uh, speed is probably maybe 50%. Like it's a, it's not an order of magnitude, but it's probably a factor of two. Um, so it's substantial. Um, and then, uh, cost might also be double, right? It's probably a factor of two level of difference right now. Um, one of the areas that I'm actually super interested in is this idea of, uh, safety from a computer vision standpoint. Um, good luck getting this certified, but this is something that uh, there are a number of researchers working on about identifying uh, foreign objects in frame and in, in a cell, and that could be a person, and then you could automatically speed limit a system when someone walks in. Um, and you can use these things, like you can use cobots, for instance, in conjunction with floor mats and light screens to buy you more time. So for instance, you could have a cobot running at full speed and then when someone walks in the space, it starts running at half speed. And when someone walks even closer, it runs at 10% speed. And then if someone hits it, it stops, right? Um, and all of that could be, you know, one integrated system without the need for guarding, right? Um, and that's, a, I guess that's a, that's interesting with machine vision, I guess there's some probably research that cross, I would say like pollinates from autonomous vehicles as well, right? Yeah. Where you're detecting oh, yeah. like people and so uh, I'm wondering how that's going to play out because obviously there's some controversy and I would say like legal <laughs> loopholes that they also need to figure out. And I think as that advances, I think that's going to open uh, the metaphorical floodgate for all the other technologies that will use similar detection techniques. Yeah, and I, I think it's coming um, maybe 10, 20 years from now. It'll be much more commonplace. Um, but full disclosure, I also drive a Tesla, so, you know. <laughs> Dave, what are your thoughts or maybe some last questions on cobots specifically before we jump into a different discussion? No, I, I think the, the cobots are interesting. And as to Vlad's comment of 
most of the cobots I've seen are also on the trade show. And, you know, it's, it's the teach pendant. It's the very super uh, simple applications. So I, I think it's interesting to hear about all of the reasons why people are leveraging cobots. I would almost think that at this point, if you need a robot or want a robot, it's the which one can I get, right? Like I'll take a six axis, I'll take a cobot, give me anything that I can get because I need to put it uh, on the factory floor. And that, that kind of brings me to the kind of the next topic of question when we look at the future. So Max, do you imagine that lead times of these things are going to go down? Or do you imagine that lead times are gonna stay super high because even though we can make a hundred thousand of them uh, a day, a week, a month, a year now, we have demand for 200,000 of them. I mean, I, I'm not a market analyst, right? Uh, so this is not financial advice. But my my two <laughs> cents is, uh, I think I think it will come down. Um, I think that we need that from from as major as an event the last two years have been. We need time for the markets to stabilize back to a, a somewhat steady state. And I don't think demand is going to continue to outstrip supply infinitely, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think companies like Siemens are, you know, very aware of the fact that there is a lot of money to be made if you can get production back up. Um, yep. And they are willing to pay a lot of money to do that. Um, and there's obviously cool. very strong market, you know, financial incentives for, for companies uh, like Siemens and Fanuc and KUKA and ABB to get production back to where it was before. Um, and when, when it gets there, yeah, I mean, demand will be higher than it was before, but it's not going to be so much that uh, we'll be waiting you know, a year to get an arm anymore. I think that time will come down. I don't know when it will, uh, but yeah. I think it will come down. And as a follow-up, if I may ask, you know, Max, someone who's looking to fill the the gap, not necessarily on the, maybe the hardware side, but more on the skill set side and is looking to jump into robotics. Uh, and perhaps again, maybe to paint a picture of someone who's not necessarily looking to go back for three years in university or maybe doesn't even have robotics in their program, what are some of the ways that you could learn uh, or get into the robotics industry, again, at a plant level or a systems integrator level? How would you learn robotics in, I would say, like the shortest time frame or maybe the, the biggest, uh, I would say, like value for your money today? I mean, so it depends on what your starting point is. Um, if you have never done anything with uh, digital systems like uh, like programming a, a mechatronic system before, my first piece of advice is to buy an Arduino and start playing with it. Uh, and I mean, I realize that that's a very different beast than industrial robot systems, but um, that's where I started. Um, that's where a lot of people started. There's also systems like Lego Mindstorms and Raspberry Pis and a bunch of other things. Any one of these is a good starting point for learning how mechatronics systems work. And then what you have to realize is that industrial robotics are literally a much fancier Arduino and a bigger actuator, and it's all just scaled up, right? I mean, it's basically take the controller, make it 10,000 times better, and you take the arm that you were messing with with your Arduino and make it 10,000 times better, and congrats, you have an industrial robot system. Um, now that step is kind of big, but the, the the only problem with that is like, how do you get into it at that level? I mean, you can build things in virtual models. So you can start to learn these virtual tools, but truthfully um, to learn how to use industrial arms from KUKA or ABB, if you want to learn their syntax, their specifics, they tend to be very stingy with their manuals and, and want to uh, have you go to their training classes, right? So mm-hmm. um 
you either have to find a place that already has equipment that you can get to play around with. And that was how I was so lucky is that I went to a, went to a site where I, there was equipment that I could play around with and learn how to program on. And I started with KUKA um, and then I could transfer those skills or you have to be working for a company that needs you to grab those skills. And then you need to make yourself an attractive candidate to go to those training courses and, uh, and learn those skills directly from the, from the supplier. Um, and that's sort of an unfortunate answer. I wish there were like a really good open source community. That I could say, yeah, just go here and learn from them. But the best thing I got for you is learn from the open source community in the consumer grade stuff with, you know, Arduinos and 3D printers. And, uh, you know, there's lots of like microcontrol level stuff that you can do that's uh, in the hobbyist field. Uh, and then a lot of those skills you'll find are very transferable, right, onto industrial robot systems. And no, I think that's a, that's a very good answer. You know, I'll point out that one of uh, our viewers mentioned to come and see him. He's a professor of robotics and automation at a college. So I think there's going to be more and more programs at the college level. Um, again, because I think these uh, robotics manufacturers are recognizing that partnering with existing colleges and universities or technical schools makes a lot more sense than yeah. perhaps, you know, developing their own curriculum and running that entire kind of back-end show. So uh, as James Churin mentioned, come and see him if uh, you're looking into robotics. Uh, he's and then, and that's what I did, right? I mean, I learned through a partnership with the university, with KUKA and also with Gascala, these robots were provided at very low cost to the university to help train people on how to use industrial robotic arms and I mean, KUKA kind of wins because now I know how to program KUKA robots and Yaskawa wins because I know how to program Yaskawa robots. And so if I go work for uh, a different company and they ask me what robot you want to put in, it'll probably be one of the ones I know how to use, right? Um, so, you know, everybody plays the game uh, and you got to find ways to play it yourself. And that's a very important comment. I, I think not a lot of manufacturers recognize kind of like getting in in the, I would say, educational space at the very core. And I, I can give you the same example of like Texas Instruments who uh, were selling, I don't know if you know, the, the Launchpad uh, platform, which was kind of competing with Arduinos, but they were mm -hmm. selling them at a at a loss. They were $4 shipped to your door by UPS, like an entire, you know, programming board with the cables and everything. And so the idea was that if you get exposure to engineers the early enough, view, right? it would, yeah. absolutely. So they lose money up front in order to gain like in the long run. But no, it's just a, a side comment, Dave. No, no, I, I like that. And I, I think that that is maybe like a sad, sad, realistically, you know, what most people have to go through. So I guess, do you have, I mean, coming from, you know, the, the I mean, you're still in the, the college university setting with your master's degree, Max, do you have a, a good idea, like what can we as a community do to help provide better solutions and tools because we need more robotics programmers today and we'll certainly need more in five years. So if we could fast forward five years, what could have we done to help kind of open the community up and do a better job? Uh, I think my two cents is one, um, you know, the the companies that provide these uh, these arms they're incredible systems right i mean kuka and ebb and fanic these guys make awesome systems um I, it would be ideal if more of this knowledge could be openly available i've learned just about everything i know about robotics from reading manuals 
if those manuals were public knowledge instead of being paywalled, that would make life a whole lot easier for people wanting to know how these systems work and wanting to program these systems. Uh, that that just yeah becomes I mean a thousand times easier. Um, I don't know how realistic that is. Um, the other option that comes to mind is to make more of these types of systems available in public uh, spaces. So things like maker spaces and community colleges, um, having access to these tools up front, it doesn't even matter what vendor it is, uh, can help a huge amount in someone's academic development. Um, I mentioned that, you know, I started with KUKA. The skills I learned programming a KUKA robot are basically identical to any other robot. They have different terms for the same things, but they're all the same concepts, right? You learn what a singularity is. You learn what uh, a pose is. You can use all this stuff across any number of robot vendors and, um, and you know, it, the, the, the knowledge is transferable. So, you know, get more hardware in the hands of people that need to learn it. Um, is probably the single most useful thing I can say. So if you know if there's people that run makerspaces or people that um, that run um, community college labs, these sorts of things, or university labs, getting access to this type of equipment um, is incredibly helpful, and it will it'll help generate the next generation of robotics programmers. I really wish I had access to these tools, you know, when I was studying electrical engineering, but that's. Uh... Story for a different day. Glad. Dave, go ahead. I already said we're getting the octopus, right? At I mean, you mentioned point, a 20 we'll year time frame. It's a 20 year time I, frame. I said so. within our lifetimes. I, oh. I would hope our lifetimes is uh, <clears throat> beyond uh, 20, 20 years at this point. But um, I, I think uh, to, to Max's point, I think that's good advice. And I think that most professionals who specialize in any one thing that we've worked on have said very similar things. If we had better access to information, we as a community uh, would do a better job. We can then leverage people interested in, in what we are looking for. I think it's just, a, it's a function of time and, and how badly is the industry hurting in the near future as to do we get to have more of these opportunities. And maybe, maybe with robots, it's a function of, does the demand come down just enough and the supply go up just enough so that we can afford to send robots to makerspaces and community college, as opposed to, you know, sending them all to manufacturing facilities who are in desperate need of them and willing to pay top dollar for that. So I think that that's some, uh, some very good advice. Thank you, Max. Uh, kind of the next question is, uh, I know you've got some, is the next question is like content. And so I know you've got at least one podcast and a couple of pieces of reading materials. Uh, and we, we can absolutely go ahead and, uh, and talk about the, uh, the, the paper uh, that you wrote, that you have written um, as part of this. So, so what are your suggestions of people to, uh, to take a look at, Max? Okay, so uh, when we talked about this earlier this week, um, I mentioned that I'm a bit of a nerd uh, when it comes to the kind of content that I consume on my, uh, my spare time. Um, I, you might have guessed by all the, the talk about complex mathematics and continuum manipulators that I like math. Um, there is a, what I would call recreational mathematics YouTube channel, um, called three blue, one Brown that I heavily recommend. Um, they also have a podcast. Um, he talks about all sorts of interesting stuff, um, including, you know, uh, 
I think the best single best explanation of cryptocurrency I ever had was from that channel. Um, it really dives into the math behind why crypto works and all that stuff, but the, it covers all sorts of different topics, um, things that you wouldn't even really expect to find math in. Um, the latest one that I found interesting was a, a, a video about how to create an algorithm to solve Wordle for you. Right. Maybe you have the, you know, Wordle is this game. Everybody's trying to, to come up with the, the word that fits the constraints, but, um, he has a great uh, breakdown on the math behind it and how you could um, how you could code an algorithm to solve this for you. So that's my first recommendation, um, and that's I'm going to surprisingly say that's probably the lightest of reading I have for you. Um, the other stuff is like academic journal type things. Um, so there's the Soft Robotics Journal, um, which has quite a bit of good content on. Uh, uh, like research publications in soft robotics. Uh, and this is, um, a place where like, I think, I think that's where, no, my paper was published in Resna, which is an assistive technology journal. Um, but, uh, both of those are good resources, uh, to go look at. Um, if you are interested in, uh, soft robotics, segmented robotics, um, we didn't even really touch on segmented robotics, but that's kind of the same thing as soft robotics, but then you just chop them into multiple parts and then they can link back together. <laughs> it's the shortest explanation I have for that. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of good content there if you're willing to go actually dive into scientific journals, but that's, that's, you know, that's not light reading anymore. On a side note, we'll have those links. Uh, if you're listening to this after the live show, we'll have those links posted on the website if you want to check out any of the resources Max is mentioning right now in your other either driving or listening to this on a walk, maybe that will be posted on the website. Sorry, go ahead, Max. Uh, no, I think I think that's what I had in terms of recommendations. Um, awesome. Uh, the, the main one I have that I actually would say, you know, the average listener should give a shot is probably three, three blue, one brown. Um, it's, it, it, you know, not everybody likes math. I get that, but it really is interesting. So. Um, Max, I'm just surprised you aren't wearing a t-shirt that says I, I heart math, right? <laughs> uh, I, now, I, everyone, I did tell Max that we had the opportunity to get the farthest into the weeds of everyone that we've ever had. And judging by the number of people still watching, I will say that we haven't gotten too far into the weeds to watch absolutely <laughs> lose everyone. Um, I will also say that's the first math podcast that I have ever had suggested. Uh, I mean... I suppose we run a manufacturing podcast. It shouldn't surprise me that there are people who run math podcasts and math YouTube channels. Um, yeah. But, but th th this, this is a new foray for, uh, for at least Vlad. He's going to be spending the weekend, one, figuring out what Wordle is, and two, how to build an algorithm to, uh, to beat Wordle. And uh, at least we now know what Vlad is going to do, as it may or may not be snowing on them in uh, this coming weekend. Uh, but no, so th that is awesome, Max. And then the last question we have for you is, uh, is, is who should reach out to you? Um, so, I mean, <laughs> I guess anybody who's interested in uh, advanced um, simulation of robotic cells, right? Mm -hmm. um, most of my work is in uh, the offline programming digital twin level uh so this is things like I have, you know, five robots and I need to figure out how they can all interact together. And I need to, I really need to do it right the first time. I can't afford to mess around with teach programming. I don't have the time or I don't have the money, whatever it is. Those are areas where uh, Siemens and 
And that's a, like, I guess where I uh, really excel. So that, that's my area of expertise. And, you know, if you're interested in offline programming, in our offline programming solutions or anything like that, um, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. And I think, um, I think uh, Dave and Vlad, you guys were going to give either my LinkedIn information, I suspect, um, but then also, you know, they can forward on any questions uh, as well to me. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as a same note as made earlier, uh, because we did receive a couple more comments from our listeners on uh, on LinkedIn. If you want to have a conversation with Max, somebody talked a little bit about Node-RED and some robotic oh, yeah. systems, Arduinos, yeah. um, you know, we're going to have all those links to uh, Max's LinkedIn channel uh, on our website and as show notes for the podcast. So if you want to reach out to him, you know exactly where to find that link. Dave, any Absolutely. last thoughts, any questions that you want to close off? No, Max, I think we want to thank you uh, for such an amazing uh, kind of kickoff to this robotics conversation and kind of the continuing of how can we do all of this virtually, right? So I think all of that is <clears throat> extremely exciting. If you guys are listening, I will take this opportunity to ask you to hit the like button, uh, to drop a couple of comments below, ask Max some questions that you want us to pass on so he can answer. Um, if you're listening on a podcast format, you guys can go ahead and subscribe. You guys can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Audible because there are crazy people that uh, there are crazy people that listen to podcasts on Audible. Uh, Max, I like to joke. So lots of people who do podcasts ask people to subscribe. They say they don't know why it helps the algorithm. I like to joke that we do know why it helps the algorithm, but this is not that podcast. And now with Max saying here, I could be like, Max could completely rewrite the entire algorithm oh, after no. watching. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Max could completely rewrite the algorithm. And maybe we should. So our, our podcast goes up the charge. But, uh, oh, but no, we no. want to thank everyone. We want to thank Max. He, he's having some traumatic issues uh, at the moment of having to rewrite podcast algorithms. And we want to throw a shout out and thank Siemens uh, for conti their continued support of this team and, uh, and all of the community. Uh, so we want to say thank you to everyone and we'll see you all next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Max. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.